Welcome to Toil the Week in Health Law, the post-Olympics podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on August 9th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by my co-host Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week on Twill, we greet Amit Sapatwari, an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School and an associate epidemiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's based in the program on regulation therapeutics and law, for which we're thankful there is the acronym PORTAL. Uh, a lawyer as well as an epidemiologist, he is currently the principal investigator on uh, Robert Wood Johnson Public Health Law Research Grant and a faculty affiliate with our good friends at Harvard's Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology and Bioethics. I'm a big admirer of your work, Amit, and I really enjoyed our uh, interactions at the Harvard uh, Big Data Conference earlier this year. Big welcome to the pod. Thanks so much, Nick. Uh, I am equally a fan of both of your works, and it's a pleasure to be here. So I'm looking forward to dive into this. Well, we have a couple of things to get off our desk. Um, the first, I think, Frank, you could uh, you could accuse me of, of being obsessed with this case, but I, I counter with, I'm not sure it's my obsession, I think it's the FTCs. And, <laughs> and of course, I refer to the case that will not die, that has found its way onto the pod many, many times. It's LabMD. And yes, LabMD remains alive and kicking. Recently, the FTC uh, reversed the ALJ initial decision that had dismissed the FTC charges. And if you remember, dear listener, this was uh, an FTC case brought against a medical testing lab. Basically, it's a security flaw case. Case. Someone had put the LimeWire download program onto one of the computers, and the allegation was that the um, essentially PHI had had been uh, exposed. Uh, I've always loved the case because I've viewed it as a an attempt by the FTC to deal with the sectoral. Uh, privacy protection problem that we have in that the FTC took the position with this case that it didn't matter that this was or at least could be a HIPAA-covered entity. Uh, The FTC still had jurisdiction. And I think uh, beginning to paper over those cracks between our regulatory zones is something that is increasingly important. But the case really sort of uh, has a sort of chewed along on the basis of um, some evidentiary questions and and questions that I think, uh, at least for an outsider, make the case look a little weak for FTC. So it surprises me slightly that they've persevered. But uh, also on the standard to be applied with regard to uh, security, and I guess also privacy issues by extension, under the uh, unfairness prong of their jurisdiction. And uh, the... uh, the other su- slight surprise I have, I think, is because since uh, since FTC won the Wyndham Hotel case, I wasn't quite so sure as to why they needed uh, to persevere with LabMD. Anyway, they have. They disagreed with the ALJ's approach to unfairness and also to damages and took a very strong uh, position that LabMD's uh, data security practices were unreasonable and constituted an unfair act or practice 
under section five. Uh, so uh, my 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 closing remark, Frank, is this won't be the last time you hear me talking about LabMD, surely. Yes, it does look as though this is a, a litigation for the ages uh, and <laughs> will be contested. And I look forward to reading this one. You're, you're quicker on the draw than I am on LabMD, Nick. Um, I did take a look at the very lengthy ALJ opinion, and I really look forward to seeing how the commission uh, dealt with and rebutted uh, various points in it. In terms of my uh, first lightning round item, I wanted to... Uh, through our readers' attentions to uh, a story in NPR that was about federal officials trying to stop social media abuse of nursing home residents. And it's particularly of interest to Twill uh, listeners because this was thanks to a story by Charles Ornstein, who was a show guest a few months ago, on some really uh, terrible abuses uh, by, of nursing home patients by staff who took pictures, shared them on Instagram or Snapchat in ways just meant to humiliate or entertain in an extremely misguided way um, the people whom they were supposed to be serving. And it has managed to provoke both uh, attention from Senator Grassley, uh, sort of a roving watchdog in the Senate on all matters health, and also um, direct guidance from CMS on exactly what nursing homes should be doing to establish policies to stop this kind of abuse. Um, the, the guidance, by the way, is, I think, very interesting for people in general who are interested in uh, the relationship between the federal uh, regulators and nursing homes. I also had another item on my agenda for the lightning round. Um, this one is a little wonky, but I think for those of you who followed my my own obsession uh, with some healthcare financing <laughs> and estimates, um, this will be of interest, I think, which is that uh, Judy Solomon from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, she's vice president for health policy there, she provides a really good reality check for various uh worries or panicked stories about the growth in health spending. Um, her latest has been uh, sort of a reality check with respect to the Medicare actuary or the CMS actuary saying that the uh, cost of the Medicaid expansion would be higher than estimated. Um, Judith gives some background and essentially concludes that we still really can't estimate with extreme precision the cost of ACA expansions. And I think this is a really helpful item in general. I mean, I know this is sort of small ball stuff in the grand scheme of things, but on the other hand, if you look at the CBO's record and other uh, sort of trusted Washington economic authorities' records on estimating future healthcare costs, they're very often overestimated. And I think that this might be a misguided effort to try to rein in healthcare costs in general, but it raises some very deep questions about the credibility of either CBO or the actuary sometimes when over and over again the costs are sort of the cost estimates overshoot the actual spending. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. So I'm going to, my, my final one, Frank, I'm going to start with a question to you, an unrehearsed question. Oh, right. I want to talk about <laughs> the Notice of Observation, Treatment, and Implication for Care Eligibility Act. <laughs> my goodness. Okay. And, and that is... That is that NOTCA Act? <laughs> no, that's NOTICE. That's N-O-T-I-C-E. And my question to you is... <laughs> When did our our legislators begin this incredibly annoying system or approach to legislation that the acronym had to be a word 
or even if it was a somewhat made up word. You know, there is a good piece, I think, on Vox or somewhere. Actually, there may be a law review article on this. I'm going to try to dig this up for the show notes because I think someone actually did a, a whole law review article on this as a trend in legislation and how malodorous or <laughs> troubling it is. So, yes. I think that there's a, a I mean, to chime in here, I, there's a longstanding precedent, at least in the medical field, particularly in cardiovascular trials, to uh, come up with very fancy acronyms that would um, uh, that would be eye-catching or ear-catching. And so it's uh, humorous to see Congress following suit. It's weird and I think rather annoying. Anyway, to the substance of my piece here, the Notice Act is an attempt to deal with the observation status problem. And the observation status problem, according to conventional rhetoric, occurred after the readmission adjustments were put into place. And essentially, the narrative goes that if you use, if a hospital uses observation status, then they avoid the problem of a readmission and the potential uh, financial implications of that. The problem is, and again, nothing particularly novel for our healthcare system, as one stakeholder uh, changes behavior to get an advantage themselves, so it immediately disadvantages is another. And of course, the poor patients who are just put in under the observation status then are in grave danger of incurring all sorts of costs that charges that otherwise Medicare would pick up. And particularly, they would be liable for immediate nursing home costs if they incurred those. So although there is some uh, evidence, there's a New England piece, I remember, suggesting that in fact, uh, the observation observation status is not being used as a as a workaround by hospitals. Uh, most of the papers I've read on this suggest that, indeed, this is what hospitals are doing. But anyway, this is an attempt to at least put the patients on, here we go, notice as to what's going on uh, to try and uh, stop the, uh, the hospitals essentially externalizing the readmission problem to the very patients that uh, uh, those uh, penalties were designed to help by uh, increasing the level of wraparound care. That is such a great issue, Nick. And um, I have a few thoughts on this that actually ties in with my last lightning round item for the day. Uh, but before getting to that, I mean, I guess the one question that comes to mind is in the realm of informed consent, uh, this seems to be a somewhat novel issue in terms of if your care is being affected by this sort of status, and I guess maybe the care isn't being affected, but just your status is being sort of altered. But still, it just seems as though this is a really troubling sort of um, uh, issue where you do want people to sort of understand the financial incentives behind the care that they're getting or behind the designation that they're receiving. Um, because it would seem really strange if this status were had no bearing whatsoever on how the person was actually treated. Although, who knows, maybe maybe it, maybe it doesn't. Um, but I will be certainly looking into that act. I think it, uh, in informed consent space, it brings to mind a case like that California one, um, Arato against Avedon, where the California Supreme Court didn't seem in favor of financial uh, information uh, being disclosed to patients. And then sort of running counter to that and beautifully uh, dealt with in Tim Joe's book on um, consumer-directed healthcare, uh, unraveling the, the onion of uh, CDHC 
and and clearly informed consent to financial risk disclosure would be part of that puzzle. Yes. Yes, I completely agreed on that. And I think that that is a real issue that people need to know. I mean, and another thing that I think is really interesting is, you know, that this ties in so beautifully with this final article I wanted to go over from Ashish Jha uh, in the JAMA forum called Will Episode Payment Models Show How to Better Pay for Hospital Care? Where he talks essentially about um, episode payment models for uh, joint replacement and for coronary, ar- coronary artery bypass graft, cabbage uh, surgery. Um, and the bottom line of this is, to make a very long story short, one of the things that Jaw says would make this system better is to essentially have more patient-reported outcome measures for functional status. These patient-reported outcome measures are called PROMS, P-R-O-M-S. And the only worry that I have here uh, is, coming into the podcast, the cost of data collection. I think that's been systematically understated. And I think in many ways, our healthcare system, uh, you know, with the expansion of coverage, is running, uh, as we heard from Dr. John Mark Hershen uh, a few weeks ago, is really running at very high capacity. And, you know, additional burdens, whether they have data collection or others, can be a bit dangerous. The other one that was sort of brought to mind um, by what, what you just mentioned, Nick, is the idea of do you want to tell the patients the implications of their ratings of the doctors, right? Because if, 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 if you just have someone get something and they have no idea what it means, maybe they're just going to be, you know, they don't care. This is also known as the mechanical Turk problem sometimes. If you ask problem questions to, re- to research subjects on mechanical Turk, they may just want to get through the, the thing as quickly as possible. They may not give you an- the accurate answers. If you tell them it does have monetary consequences, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? You know, I mean, who knows? So I, I just think that you know, there's there has to be a lot more theory and research, perhaps, into how all of these measures fit together and how very subtle influences on the way questions are framed or the way people are informed will influence their uh, their adoption and their effects. Yeah, and I think I would add one more thing that I think poses a nice intersection between Jaws or a piece is the fact that uh, you've got a missed opportunity here to really do some randomized control trials out in the field in terms of the unveiling of this policy. Um, Just like with the hospital readmission rates, I mean, the findings from that New England Journal of Medicine study where people thought the system would clearly be gamed and then saw at least some evidence, Nick, you've mentioned there's other evidence, but at least some evidence that there was, uh, that it didn't have an influence. Uh, I think that shows that more evidence is needed here. And to the degree that you want to see what the outcomes are, um, you have a, a, a capable way of testing this. And I think uh, Jaws commenting that that moment is lost to some degree. So, I mean, let's start with uh, something really basic, uh, just something that struck me as uh, I was reading your, your CV. What does a lawyer epidemiologist do? And specifically, what do you do at Portal? That's a that's a great question, Nick. I guess the sort of opportunities that are out there are a little bit limited in some respect for an epidemiologist lawyer. I did epidemiology first, and I, I loved it, but I thought that uh, I really wanted to have a chance to influence health policy, and I saw uh, get, obtaining a law degree as, as really a way to do that as another uh, 
uh, tool in the arsenal. And um, I was fortunate enough that the ground had been blazed or the path had been blazed by uh, uh, the director of Portal, Aaron Kesselheim, who's been a guest on your show. Um, and really what he's done is he's seen a way to merge uh, epidemiology and law to focus really on prescription drug issues, cost, access, um, innovation, um, and apply epidemiological methods to the study of pharmaceutical policy. And that's sort of what I was brought in to do a couple of years ago. And um, the program, thankfully, under Aaron's leadership has really grown. And we're finding that there's, uh, there's quite a need to do some of the work we're doing, and hopefully it's making a difference. On that note, to start with a piece that uh, you co-authored with uh, Aaron, um, and, and dear listeners, of course, uh, as is uh, uh, common with regard to uh, the kind of uh, journal articles that we're going to be discussing, uh, a meet uh, typically is, is, is one of uh, two or three or four authors on there, and uh, we, we won't spend time uh, detailing it each time, but uh, uh, you'll be able to uh, see exactly uh, who who is on the papers uh, from the show notes. You all had a piece with a title that I think uh, was quite challenging because it begins paying physicians to prescribe uh, both drugs and uh, biologics. And, uh, you know, it was somewhat counterintuitive, right? <laughs> As with so many of our constructs today, we're trying to find ways of them not doing that or, or stopping paying them quite so much. But the piece seems to be taking the... Uh, the approach that uh, we have to get physicians off the brand name drugs uh, to a large extent and move them to uh, generics and give real incentives for that shift. So could you tell us a little bit more about that piece and some of the problems you found? For example, uh, I think you... In the article, you you draw a generic biosimilar distinction because of some of the issues that sort of um, uh, fall off that. So it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on that piece. This was a piece that sort of originated out of the Behavioral Economics Conference at um, at the law school at the Petru Flom Center. And uh, really what we're trying to do is figure out a way, as many, many scholars are, are trying to do, is how to influence physician prescribing behavior. And the question is, we've already seen a wave in terms of generic drugs, and there I'm talking about small molecule drugs, um, where there is a great deal of evidence that the FDA standards for what a generic small molecule drug is, is equal to, uh, by all intensive purposes, to its brand name equivalent. And thus, uh, you have, you want to go over to that lower cost product once it becomes available, once the, the exclusivity period for that brand name drug ends. Um, otherwise, it's it's really in many cases just a waste of money and actually is worse for patients because of health outcomes because they're not able to afford that brand name medication. So in that context, what we've seen is, you know, even though brand generic drug use has increased significantly, now almost 90% of all prescriptions are filled generically, the real mechanism that enabled that is these drug product selection laws across all 50 states that either mandate or authorize a pharmacist to substitute a prescription for a brand name drug with its generic equivalent. Um, yet despite, you know, a great track record, despite over $1.5 trillion in savings over the past decade, there's still a great deal of skepticism from both uh, physicians and patients about generic drugs. And where this is particularly concerning uh, is in this context of biologics. Um, these are more complex molecules. 
they are harder to replicate. And in that respect, uh, uh, the FDA doesn't consider copies of follow-on bio, uh, copies of biologics as generics. They call them follow-on biologics. And essentially they are similar to, but not deemed equivalent to. And there is a pathway for something called an interchangeable follow-on biologic, but the FDA has yet to provide any sort of guide, product-specific guidance on how manufacturers can can get that uh, official designation. And so in that respect, these drug product selection laws aren't going to be available. So what is really more important now is that we convince physicians and patients of the merits of these follow-on biologics, because these are the more expensive drugs. These are the drugs that are going are increasingly being used more. And so now the question is, well, how do you steer physicians towards use of it? And there's a sort of the ethical questions here are, well, do you want to cloud physician judgment with uh, potentially a financial uh, reimbursement for using these products? Or is it merely just the flow of information? And that all needs to be considered in the backdrop of how information is really disseminated to physicians in particular, but now increasingly with direct-to-consumer advertisement to patients. And in this context, it's not a free flow of information. It's not a marketplace of ideas that we think of with regard to political speech. In this commercial speech environment, the only people who have deep pockets are really the brand name drug companies. And so... Um, they are the ones who are enticing or promoting their products, uh, enticing physicians to use them, and that use isn't necessarily rational. And as a result, uh, you do see uh, what I would say is, and I think what many people would say is, irrational use of, of certain medicines over others. Um, and this piece sort of focuses on, well, what are the right sort of strategies to sort of combat that asymmetry in the marketplace? Actually, it reminded me somewhat as I, as I read the piece of some of the arguments that uh, uh, have surfaced about agencies sort of using counter-programming to sort of respond to corporate First Amendment challenges, uh, be it with regard to anti-smoking or maybe even off-label use. I actually wanted to just clarify one thing, just to because I know that you're so deep in the weeds in it. Uh, I mean, and just for our listeners' sake, it is the case that there's really no difference in quality between these, the generic and the brand name, or between the follow-on and the and the original. Is is that the case? I mean, or are some, or do you sometimes get some pushback where there's say some study that's out there that says that you know either people prefer the the brand or that there's some you know worry about quality differences frank great question i think you've hit the nail on the head here and sort of the evidence base is very strong for those generic small molecule drugs that they are exactly the same um and yes you do see some lower quality studies that say you know there was this poor event but what's increasingly coming out with more robust studies and long track record of these robust studies is that in terms of safety and efficacy, they are the same. Um, there is more of a question once you come to follow on biologics because these drugs have not been, they've been used in Europe for about 10 years and they haven't been used in the States until this past year and now there's only two on the market. So there's admittedly more concern because it's harder to replicate these exactly. Um, that being said, the FDA standards are, are almost identical to Europe standards and in over 10 years of use, you haven't seen problems 
problems with follow-on biologics in Europe. So it, it is a case of uh, do you trust the regulator or not? Um, but I think that there is an important distinction to be drawn between, I think, what I would say is more legitimate concerns potentially about uh, safety and efficacy with follow-on biologics versus small molecule drugs. I wonder if we could move on to another area. I mean, I think we've covered, you know, admittedly, not in the detail that I'd like, but, you know, with some background and with some insights, the issue of counter-detailing there or countering uh, sort of the one-sided messaging often within um, drugs. Um, the next item that I think is would be of great interest to our listeners is your work on medical research ethics. And in particular, there is some work that you've done on the crowdsourcing of public health experiments. Could, could you briefly describe this article in response to Darrow's work, crowdsourcing clinical trials, and some of the concerns that you raised? Sure, I'd be happy to. And I think uh, Jonathan Darrow, who is a former colleague in the division, and he'll be rejoining us later this winter, um, yeah, put forward a, a very nice piece sort of talking about the distinction between pre- and post-approval uh, use of drugs and what that really means and whether or not that line is somewhat artificial and how we can use sort of crowdsourcing as a way to study um, observationally um, how these drugs are fair on the market once they're approved early and really conduct some early, fast um, studies of them to sort of uh, identify problems. And there's merit to that. That is part of a larger strategy that needs to be done. And we need to recognize that there's a lot of forces that are pushing FDA or pressuring FDA to increasingly approve drugs earlier and earlier in the testing process. Um, I think what we sort of uh, counter with, and this is a team that includes uh, Chris Robertson and David Yoakum um, and, and Keith Joyner, is that we sort of say, yes, that the, that is an important aspect in terms of uh, contributing towards an evidence base for the drug, but that there are inherent limitations um, to observational data that you won't, uh, in terms of unmeasured confounding and things like that, that will sort of, uh, that will limit and potentially introduce bias into the findings that you have, that it's not the same as the gold standard randomized control trial. And there are reasons why we place faith in that randomized control trial. And then we extend and we pivot and we say that that sort of opportunity of using crowdsourcing isn't just limited limited to uh, op isn't just limited to randomized control trials, potential or observational studies in Darrow's case of drugs, but you could also use it to sort of do pragmatic randomized control trials for more so a wider range of public health interventions in terms of, uh, you know, when you're talking nutraceuticals, you're talking all sorts of avenues of uh, exercise routines, things like that, that there's the ability here now to sort of do more rigorous studies of these in a wider platform um, with all the important caveats of sort of data quality and issues, but that there is an infrastructure in place potentially in which you could recruit and collect data 
uh, on a very vast scale that could be quite beneficial for for the nation's public health. You uh, discuss in in the piece the classic FDA one-time approval, uh, pre-approval, or non-approval binary, and contrast that with uh, CCT. Given the interest of the um, the portal uh, crew on innovation, is is this uh, an approach that can be used outside of the sort of the relatively narrow uh, piece that you're discussing here? Is is are there other opportunities to break that binary and to move to something that's more flexible? It's a difficult question in terms of, particularly in the pharmaceutical sphere, is. You know, the cat, to a certain degree, is out of the bag once you approve a drug. And even in the case of what you see with proposed legislation in Congress with the 21st Century Cures Act, something like, you know, limited limited indications for antibiotics, um, the the problem is there is no restriction in terms of physicians' ability to, and for good reason, to prescribe things off-label. And increasingly, as we've seen commercial speech rights have been increasing. And so the ability of pharmaceutical companies now post Amarin to market things off label. So the sort of concern is the mechanisms that you have in place to sort of constrain use of a product to its desperate need or its need um, while you evaluate more evidence uh, is, is a very difficult and challenging thing to do. So now it's this question of how much exposure you think is warranted. And there are sort of mechanisms the FDA has in place, and this may segue into a different piece, but in terms of things like post-2007, Congress gave the FDA the authority to impose what's called risk evaluation and mitigation strategies, or REMS, where they can put in place certain conditions of use. Now, the problem is the HHS, the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General, a couple of years back, sort of issued a very scathing report saying, FDA really didn't have any means of uh, evaluating the effectiveness of these programs. And, you know, the FDA admittedly said, yes, it's a very difficult thing to do. So in terms of moving beyond this sort of binary approach to something that would enable more access, but also uh, assure very close monitoring, I, I think we're in a flux state right now where we're trying to establish what sort of balance we want as a public. I'm wondering if we could close out our conversation with a discussion of REMS and whether they're associated with less off-label use of medications. REMS, again, have been around since 2007, and um, nowadays uh, there's a decent number of new drugs that have REMS, and the most sort of onerous of those REMS, there are different categories, something that can be as straightforward as a medication guide to what's called elements to assure safe use, which are rather more onerous. Um, and those could be sort of mandatory enrolling of patients in a registry, uh, restricted distribution through a specialty pharmacy, um, where and, and also signed acknowledgement of sort of an understanding of risks uh, among that patients and physicians both have to sign in an agreement to abide by certain terms. And so it's this more onerous realm of REMS, the Atazu REMS, I'll call it, um, is, again, the question of how do you study how what their impact has been. And a problem with that 
is there's no convenient control for a lot of these drugs, meaning that there's not a period of time in which they existed on the market without their REMS. And so to sort of say what the impact has been is challenging. Now, we found a case which relates to sort of a rare autoimmune disease in which the REMS was uh, put in place initially at drug approval, but because what the FDA thought they sort of gave in a somewhat ambiguous reason for removing it, but they removed the REMS. And so there's been a period of time where the drug has been has been on the market, but without the REMS. And you now have sort of this pre-post ability to evaluate, well, what happens once the REMS was removed? And obviously with any pre-post study, there's sort of concerns about time trends and the other things that might be going on. But what we notice is we found an association that these REMS, which basically required us, you know, an acknowledgement of the risks uh, to abide by certain terms, that this, that these REMS, uh, there was an increase in the ratio of off-label to on-label use after the REMS was released or removed. And sort of the question was then, does that mean, I mean, you, in terms of causal inferences, you can only go so far with observational studies, but it somehow, if there really is an association between REMS and reduced off-label use, is that a good thing? Is that something we want to do? And you would sort of think in a case where a drug warrants a REMS, where you say that there are serious enough uh, known or perceived risks of the drug that you want to limit its use as much as possible to populations that need the drug, you could say that that might be a good thing. But interestingly, in this case, it's a, it was a paradoxical example of where the off-label use was actually later found to be quite effective. And that evidence for that off-label use actually existed beforehand. And so the question was, were you actually doing a bad thing by restricting off-label use? And that is uh, just a uh, a window into some of the complexity that that the FDA has to deal with, and I think they're oftentimes maligned from all sides as for as for the job they're doing. But I think it is a very difficult job, and it involves weighing an incredible amount of factors. I think that you know trying to map out all the unintended consequences of many reform moves is is very helpful. There's this one last article that I think sort of ties in with exactly the point you just made, which was the piece about using a drug safety tool to suppress competition, um, another recent piece of yours. Could you briefly describe that piece? That is a piece, really, again, of unintended consequences. And there you've got a situation where these REMs, again, come on the market. And what we've seen is that, and again, not to cast any blame or anything like that, but as companies are, tend to do, they tend to see what uh, how they can maximize their revenues. And uh, that oftentimes is, uh, in the pharmaceutical sphere, the concept of sort of evergreening comes up. We've seen that there have been select misuse of the REMS in terms of using them as a way to forestall generic competition. So a drug with known or suspected safety concerns warrants a REMS and the brand name company then says, okay, we will set up a REMS that requires restricted distribution. And so we want to make sure that only those people who need it have these drugs and we might set up a single specialty pharmacy. But what we've seen is in the case of REMS and even in the case of non, some non-REMs, like in the case of permethamine and Martin Shkreli, you, you've seen companies that have, well, let's just take the 
rams, but have used the rams in saying, well, because of this drug has safety problems associated with it, we are going to restrict distribution and generic companies aren't, I have no obligation to deal with them. And in fact, it would be unsafe for me to do so because I, they're not, a, they're not part of this rams agreement. And so in that case, these generic companies are sort of fighting to get access to samples to conduct their bioequivalence tests, which is what's needed for them to come on the market anyway. And so what that effectively does is it increases the time period of exclusivity for that original product, for that brand name product. And the longer exclusivity they have, the more profits that they reap. Ultimately, that's bad for the consumer and is bad for the regulatory system we've put in place where we've sort of said, this is your defined period of exclusivity. Once it's done, we want generic competitors into the market to help drive down costs. You've also seen in terms of misuse of REMS, the interesting case of trying to patent them. And Celgene is one company that has done this effectively. And patenting the REMS, what they've effectively done is, is to say in one sort of egregious case, I will patent the REMS, then I will petition the FDA not to approve any generic products because they would have to have a different REMS in place and having two REMS for the same drugs would be in inherently unsafe. And sort of our take on that is, yeah, you're right, Selgene, that would be inherently unsafe. But the answer to that is, well, you shouldn't probably be able to patent that REMS. And so there is, an, there is a sort of balance here in terms of how we promote safety and whether or not our attempts at promoting safety can have unintended consequences of forestalling competition. And thankfully, the FTC has been very, you know, very good about monitoring this sphere. And you're starting to see sort of enforcement action being aggressively taken. And it's not just limited to REMS. You see misuse of other regulatory tools that have been used to promote orphan drugs in the case most recently of AstraZeneca and Crestor, again, as tools to forestall generic competition. And really, in the grand scheme of things, as a sort of take-home message, if you're talking about pharmaceutical policy and you're talking about increasing drug prices, the most effective way to sort of counter the rise in drug prices and the burden on consumers is, is, is early introduction of generic drugs. And so to the degree that this is interrupting that, that is only exacerbating the problem that we're currently seeing. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Dr. Sarpatwari, who is at A-M-E-E-T-S-A-R-P-A-T-W-A-R-I on Twitter. What a great collection of issues and many more to come, uh, I think. Amit, great fun having you with us. I'm very thankful for you extending the invitation and uh, I, I continue to greatly follow you follow this week in health law. So till next time then. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes, rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where are you hanging out in the social media space this week? I can be contacted at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Thank you.